We're going to jump into the Word. This is a great uh, Sunday to be here. Welcome to everyone. If you're a little bit new, brand new, or you know, you're know uh, you like me, older than dirt, uh, we're glad you're here. And uh, we are going to start today a new series for the semester. Uh, well, I'm going to do two different mini-series here this semester. New Testament is what we focus on fall semester. U of M students are mostly not here yet because uh, the U is actually delaying a couple weeks, but we're going to start anyway with Ephesians here. So Ephesians, we chose, I was going to go a different direction, but in light of all the trouble in our society, I thought how appropriate to zoom out to what I think is probably the book that has the biggest picture in the whole Bible of what God is doing. And you'll see that today, the book of Ephesians. So history is, is packed with wars, conflicts, murders, broken relationships. It's a grief to God's heart. And some people wonder, well, is God helpless? You know, he just kind of ride along with us? Is he silent? Are we destined to a mire of conflict and acrimony and devastation? Well, that is certainly the plan of the evil spiritual powers. What's God's response? In a word, God's response is Christ, Christ and his church, so the theme that we're looking at today is that Christ unifies all true believers. I mean, most of my message has already been preached in pieces this morning. We'll just put it together, all right? But uh, the, the unity you experience at a Sturgis rally, part of the power of that is when diverse elements of the body of Christ come together under God's purpose, John 17, blessing, and the world believes, right? So... Christ unifies all believers. What are the steps to unity? We'll look at Ephesians chapter 1. I know. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Hang on. We're going to do it. All right? So uh, what are the steps to Christian unity? The first step to Christian unity is embracing your Christian identity, or what we call it sojourn grace-filled identity. So we're going to look at that, and I'm going to read uh, like uh, 11 verses. You'll be okay. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 through verse 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In that, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. That's graceful identity. He did this by predestining us in love for adoption to himself, for himself, through Christ Jesus, according to the favor of his will, for the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has graciously given us in the one he loves, right? Whew, that's the Father's work, now the Son's work. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which grace he caused to overflow to us with all wisdom and understanding by making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the favor which he intended in Christ, with respect to the plan and the fullness of the times, that is, to bring everything together in Christ, the things in heaven and the things on earth in him. That's the work of the Son. We'll examine that. Now the work of the Spirit, um, not quite. In whom we also were chosen when we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works all things according to the plan of his will, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. That's the work of the Son. Now the work of the Spirit, verse 13. In whom also you... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and in whom also having, when you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's possession for the praise of his glory. Got that? 
Let's pray. So, Lord, we ask you to open your word, the power of your word, that you would, in fact, give us revelation and understanding that you would work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we'll focus a little bit later on verses 9 and 10, but understand what he's saying in those verses. Well, and later, uh, verse 23. Ephesians says that God is unifying everything in Christ in two steps. The first step is unifying all redeemed people, and I would say any other moral agents in the universe, right, angels or whatever, in Christ. Unifying all moral agents in Christ, and then secondly, subduing all rebellion under Christ's feet, so that the whole world would be brought into peace and unity. So what are these steps to Christian unity? The first step to Christian unity is embracing Christian identity. I just read the verses. I want you to notice a deep, implied Trinitarian structure. The work of the Father is verses 3 through 6. The work of the Son, verses 7 through 12. And the work of the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And so it says, starting with verse 3, to summarize it, we were blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We were chosen by being predestined for adoption to the praise of his glory. Right? In other words, the work of the Father is to take you and predestine you to be adopted. Now, there's a couple things that are weird about this. The way that God chose to resolve the break with humanity was in the most honoring way possible in the Greco-Roman culture, and even today we sense this. He said, I am going to take you into my family and adopt you. Now, the we and the they in, in the passage is important. The we in the passage is Jews. The they is Gentiles. And it all applies to everybody. But here's the thing. The we of we Jews, you think, oh, they're the natural branches. No, the Jews too, he said, had to be adopted because nobody is a natural child of God. And so he chose, I have a couple adopted children. And you know, you might think, well, people think different things about adopted children. Let me tell you what God thinks. Natural children... He doesn't have any. He chose adoption as the means of treasuring us. An adopted child has been deliberately chosen in a way that a natural child has not. It was an honoring thing in Greco-Roman culture, which is why Paul chooses to use that illustration. It's a powerful thing to be chosen specially, right? chosen for adoption but then here's the other thing that's really wild <laughs> he did this uh, before the creation of the world go ahead just think about it don't you know don't try too hard but think about it that's right mary before the creation of the world he said mary stage she's mine hallelujah right okay now don't worry he gets to free will too but you know it's just very it's powerful i'll tell you what your worst days you say, I, Craig Kruger, was chosen before the creation of the world for adoption. 
to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is why I was chosen. Wow. None of us are naturally part of the family, and the way that God chose to save us was by adopting us before the creation of the world. God predestined you to this. And then, starting in verse 7, the son, you've been redeemed. And he explains, in case you don't know what redemption means, he says, which is the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> okay? Your sins have been paid for. You are forgiven and free in the gospel. And uh, it's actually a little pun in here, if I can find it here. Um, we, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, of transgressions. That's right. Okay. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's paraptima. It is the forgiveness of deliberate breaking of the boundaries. It's not just, oh, you know, you blew it because you didn't know any better. It's like when you have crossed a line and you know better. It's the forgiveness of the transgressions, the, the, the trespasses we used to say in the old Lord's Prayer, right? If you jump the boundary and you shouldn't have, he says, forgiveness of transgressions according to the riches of his grace. And then, <laughs> and then they kind of try to... It's hard to say in English, but according to the riches of his grace with which he graciously gave us or whatever, you know, it's like it's all grace, right? He graced us in the one he loved. And then in verse 13, he shifts to the Gentiles of because uh, he's going to talk about the unity of Jew and Gentile. But it's still just the same stuff, right? In him also you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed, uh, we might think of like, you know, an envelope and looking the thing is, you know, but that's not really what they meant. It's more like you're, you know, going to send, ship some cattle from Crete to, uh, you know, Algeria. You sealed it with, you know, you heat up a little piece of iron and you put your mark on it. Right? Branded, right? You have been branded with the Spirit. There is, when you say to Jesus, I trust you, I surrender my life to you, he puts something in you. And have you noticed that when you get that brand, you're not as happy doing bad stuff anymore? Right? He's put his mark on you, and even when you try to get a little rebellious, it's like, oh, it's not as fun as it was anyway, because he's marked you, he's sealed you with the Holy Spirit which he says, until the day of redemption. In other words, um, and there's a whole teaching in here that we cannot do today, but he says, verse 13, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, the promise of salvation, who is the down payment of our inheritance. In other words, now, you know, pagan, is it Brian and Peg? Yeah, okay. Now, you guys, have you experienced something of the Holy Spirit, it sounds like? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess what? That is just a little down payment. What is heaven going to be like? I mean, if the most extreme experience you've had in Jesus is the down payment, what is the full inheritance? Hallelujah. I mean, you know, you may be one of the, you know, tamer people at Sojourn thinking, boy, you know, some of these people are pretty wild. Well, the wildest one is nothing compared to heaven. And, and I'll tell you why. Can you imagine being in the presence of the one who redeemed you? Hallelujah, hallelujah, but hallelujah flat on my face, right? Oh my gosh, hallelujah, whoa, <laughs> right? The intensity of the communion of the Holy Spirit is what's coming ahead, just a down payment. And then he says, until the redemption of 
the possession. And there's a whole, this is why I can't do this whole teaching here, but some of you heard this before, so I'll just mention it. He's talking about God's desire for a people from all eternity. If you want to trace the teaching, start in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. There, the Hebrew word is sigula, his treasured possession, right? Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy 14, 7, I think it is, a little rusty, okay? And then Malachi, I think it's 3, uh, well, no, in, in English it would be uh, 316. They number them differently in Hebrew and English, okay? So anyway, it's the treasured possession of God, and they're, they're, the, they're the people that God has longed for and doted all through history. And Paul says here, and in Titus 2, 11 to 14, and 1 Peter 2, 9, that that treasured possession now is every believer in Jesus Christ. We are the treasure of God, which will come in a little bit later in the next point. So all are saved for the cro- through the cross. And so he says, we Jews, verse 12, he doesn't say we're the, you, use the word Jews, but he means that, and you Gentiles. So this last issue is crucial. All are saved through the cross, so now all have equal access to the gospel and to God. Now, in Paul's day, the big division was Jew and Gentile to the Jew, right? There was Jews and everybody else. In our world, it's other divisions, but the point is that in Christ, all are unified in Christ. All have equal access. The chosen are not just believing Jews, but all nations are foreknown and predestined in Christ. So how does this help us? Well, take each of these realities I just talked about and put them deep in your soul. I don't care if you're a meditator in scripture or you turn it into a song and you sing it. I don't care how you do it. Get it in your soul. Your identity in Christ. Because you are predestined to adoption. Your sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit uh, tells you, brands you as belonging to God. And here's why. If you're paying any attention to the news in the last 15 years, you're familiar with something called identity politics. You familiar with that? Right? So it's not enough to say you're American, you're an African American, an Asian American, a Caucasian American. People that do that are onto something very important. They've grasped something. They correctly note that what you regard as your identity shapes your behavior. What you see as your foundational identity shapes who you are. So my, the Bible says, my identity as a human isn't lost. I'm still a Kruger, whatever that means, right? In the past, it meant not faithful to your family. We're trying to redeem that one. I think we're, you know, on the way. Whatever that identity may mean as a Kruger, it's not lost, but it is transcended by something so much more profound and overarching. I am blessed, graced, chosen, forgiven, sealed, branded by the Spirit of God. That is more fundamental than anything else about me. So it doesn't obliterate culture, but it fulfills the purpose for my unique background. So I may bring, whether my ethnic identity or my Kruger identity or whatever it would be, I bring things out of that. It is not obliterated, but it is fulfilled appropriately as it's transcended in Christ. Make your Identity in Christ primary is my first plea. So the first step to unity 
is embracing our Christian identity. The second step to unity is using our Christian resources. So here's where we move to verse 15, and here's where we address some of the things that Colton brought up and the first prophecy, which I think was Nick and some others in there. It all kind of flows together here. This is really interesting. Verse 15 says, Because of this, I also, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not ceased giving thanks for you and making remembrance of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, you know something intellectually is not necessarily the end game here, right? He says that wisdom, spirit of wisdom and revelation, and I think it should be capitalized, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation, by enlightening the eyes of your heart in order to you, that you might know three things. And we'll talk about what you need to know intellectually, but what he's saying here is these three things need to be known, not just intellectually, but you do need to have a sense of spiritual revelation over them, all right? So three things he mentions um, in verse uh, 18, the hope of his calling, okay, the hope of heaven, we'll talk about that a little bit, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, his inheritance with the riches of the glory, we'll talk about that, and then the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believed, and then he mentions two things that his power did amazingly. When he resurrected Christ from the dead, and we think of resurrection power, healing, and seated him far in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and every name that is named. So for Paul, for us, we think of resurrection, healing, hallelujah, we're going to live after death, yes. But Paul said, yes, that, but also in over the spiritual powers. So that that revelation involves a couple of steps here, right? And so, again, this is not knowledge but it's experience with God and inner revelation that ignites the truth. Now, this sort of thing can be abused and become very elitist, right? You've probably all heard people say, you know, well, you know, I've got revelation on this verse, like you don't, right? Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Biblical faith will never produce an elitism or a pride. There'll always be a humility. But... He is talking about an inner revelation that is beyond head knowledge of an inner conviction and a boldness and an activation that occurs by the Holy Spirit. Now, this sort of thing makes me very nervous as a pastor, right? Because, again, people abuse it. <laughs> but the reality is it's there. He's saying there, this is real, right? Let me give you an illustration. It's a lame one, but it's what I got. Okay, so, okay. Um, apologetics and uh, hard Bible questions. Because of the nature of who I am, people come to me with these things all the time, right? Hard intellectual questions. One of the challenges as I have come, gotten more experience in the Lord is people will come with this and they're torn with this intellectual question. Oh, it's really bugging me, you know? And, and it's, well, you know, not, I would say this humbly, but I've thought about it before. Great, you know, here's the three classic answers or two answers or here's Craig's answer, whatever it is, you know? One of the things I have to remember is I have to remember how emotionally distressing it can be because of the experience of the Holy Spirit and the walking with God 
in the past, it used to really bug me and scare me, and I had to think it through, right? All the hard questions they raised in Bible classes here at the U, not Orthodox, okay? And, uh, you know, I had to deal with all that, right, as a young Christian. But as an older Christian, it isn't even knowing more, although certainly we grow in knowledge. It's the knowledge of the Spirit. It's the knowledge of walking with Jesus that they don't have the intellectual impact. I mean, they don't have the emotional impact anymore, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that question. Yeah, okay, sure. Let's talk about that, right? See, that happens to you. Cause you why? Because you have a revelation of who got, you know, have you ever had this happen? Now, if you haven't, don't worry. It's only weird people like me, but, and a few others I could point out, but I won't because I haven't asked her permission. But, uh, you know, sometimes you can be like, oh, that's a really hard question. Oh, you know, what do I really think about that? And at the very same time, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and you know the presence of God. It's like, yeah, right, right? I'm not denying the importance of the intellectual. I'm far from that. We need to be integrated and understand all of it. But there's a revelation that comes of the Lord that even when you're asking intellectual questions, they don't have any emotional power anymore because you come to know the Lord in that way. And so it's not just knowledge, but experience with God, an inner revelation. And what do we, they need enlightenment about? The hope of our calling. All right, well, what's our hope? Heaven? Okay, that's good. Let's, let's, let's dig it out a little bit more. Heaven, like heaven, like heaven, what, what, what's heaven? New, new earth or new heaven? Okay, new heaven, new earth. Okay, that's okay. I like that. Yeah. Say it a little louder for the deaf. We're going to see God. Ooh, now I'm starting to like heaven a little more, right? Okay, we're going to be face to face with God, right? No more sickness, pain, disease. No more temptation, Right? reconciliation of all relationships, right? That's the hope. Okay, well, I can know that in a lecture and go, yeah, okay, great. And then, you know, my wife can get in an accident. I, I relate to you, brother. My, wife died of a, my first wife died of a brain tumor, and these guys walked through it with me, many of the people here. If all you have is a, oh, yeah, I have a hope of heaven, that's not going to sustain you in those times, right? Intellectual hope. But it's like, no, I, you know what? Jesus is present in my life. By the way, that's my testimony of that season of life, those five, six years, is that the presence of God was more tangible then than at any other time in my life because he is near to the brokenhearted. Yeah. The sense of the presence of God was almost, it was almost drove me crazy in the sense that I am grieving that my wife is dying and I am like saturated with the presence of God. Right? That's, that's where... There's something going on beyond the intellectual. Right? There's something going on by the Holy Spirit that no human being can do. And then the riches of his inheritance is puzzling. Now, this can be preached in a very humanistic way. You know, you know you're so wonderful that God is rich in you. Well, that's not exactly what he's saying, right? What he's saying is God's wealth is displayed in what he's done in us. Hallelujah. So if you knew me as a selfish, slightly high suburban snot in high school, you would say, God has done a work. God has worked and, and he, has, he, has, he makes us into treasures. And so that's where you look at your darkest days and if you're still in the middle of them, take heart because you say, 
What in the world is God doing? This is uncomfortable. I hate it. What, you know, Lord, what are you doing? He is making you into a treasure which will bring him glory for all eternity. Hallelujah. He is making you into his treasured possession. He's making me, he's making us together into his treasured possession, which gives us value, not our intrinsic worth, but based on what God has wrought. And so his wealth is to display the glory of what he's done in his inheritance. Reconciling, healing, transforming. And then the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe. Now, just to clarify in the original context for the Ephesians, you may know, I don't see Amy Anderson this morning, but you may know that uh, some of the, her students will know that Ephesians, we're not sure that it was written to the Ephesians. Now, don't worry. I mean, it, you know, it got to Ephesus, right? But it, the earliest manuscripts have kind of a blank, you know, like to who it's to. And, and so um, it may have been, and the nature of the letter makes us think that it may have been a general reference letter for edification, Nonetheless, it was probably a general letter reference, edifying letter for that region, Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, the same as the same seven churches in Revelation, which are all right in the same area, right around Ephesus, of which it was the major city. The one hint to specific context is this, these verses and the verses in chapter six that talk about spiritual warfare. Because where are my Bible, uh, my Bible scholars here? What was the one outstanding characteristic of the Ephesian church in the book of Acts? After they got converted, what happened? Anyone remember? They had a big bonfire. Anybody remember? What did they burn? All their occult imagery and sorcery book and magic books, right? The one thing they were known for, these guys were in touch with the evil spiritual realm. So to the Ephesian area... Paul is specifically careful to say, not only did Christ raise, was, not only did God raise Christ from the dead, but he seated him in the heavenly realm, higher than this, okay, far above all rule and authority and power. Those are names for demons, right? Those are names of ruling powers on the earth. And he says, don't worry, you're seated above them. Christ is seated above them. You have nothing to fear from evil powers, so not only do you need to know the resurrection power of the gospel, but the power of the gospel to break bondage. And so for the Ephesians, and maybe for some here in your past you've experienced, you can be free of the fear and oppression of the demonic. But you can also be free of other demonic powers in society like racism, sexual exploitation, right? The the, the uh, the church rebukes the power of these things in prayer, breaks the power of sexual bondage or exploitation, and then proclaims freedom. And then we begin to walk together in that freedom in God's new society, the church. So that's why there is this tension. You got people, some are being tempted, but we're, we're saying, no, you know, give up your racial prejudice, give up your injustice, give up your sexual brokenness, give up these things and let's learn to walk together. Don't come under the powers of this world and walk in newness of life. You stumble, we'll pick you up, but there's a call to walk in newness of life. They're broken in prayer and then there's a discipleship toward the freedom lived out. You know, there, there's... Some of the sexual bondages, some of the substance bondages, just maybe the flesh, right? Just, just desire. 
but some of it is based in demonic deception, right? You start talking about transgenderism and these sorts of things, that's a demonic deception about the nature of what it means to be human. It's not just a desire, it's a deception. And that's the realm of the demonic, right? And so we, we break that in prayer, but then we proclaim the truth and then we disciple. In other words, maybe you've experienced, maybe you're in the middle of this actually. Almost any temptation can be this way. You are walking in Christ and you're not quite free in some area of your life. It might be temptation, it might be anxiety, depression. There's something going on and you're not in that total freedom. And you ask for prayer and whoo, whoo, for like three days there is total freedom. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Woo, right? And then old way of thinking come in. And you think, what happened? Didn't the prayer work? The prayer worked, but prayer alone does not change us. So here's what I've seen. When there's a, when there's a bondage and there's lies around it, God will set you free in prayer, but to hang on to that freedom, you've got to change how you think about the world, right? And so you have to say, not only am I free, but I embrace what Jesus says about who I am and the nature of whether it's sexual fulfillment or uh, you know, freedom around food or whatever it might be, you're like, I'm gonna trust, even when it doesn't feel natural, I'm gonna walk as if, I'm practicing now and take my next step, I'm gonna walk as if, and this is where we go to Elisa's word, right, that, that, that is true, I'm gonna trust that it's true, and I'm gonna practice obedience I'm changing both my thinking belief system and my habits, and they work together to transform. And pretty soon it's like, okay, I can do this. Oh, oh, okay, oh, no, 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 right, there we go. All right, yep, this is what I believe. This is what I do. Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, quick call up Ryan for prayer. Okay, yes. Okay, right? And we're, we're the, the, what we believe and what we do begins to work together. I'm not saying it's easy. We're talking about transforming you into something basically eternal and supernatural. So give it some time. Okay? The image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So, you know, yeah, it's not always easy. C.S. Lewis says, you know, he says, we, we, we give rid of a few bad habits and we, we wish he'd leave us alone, right? I'm good, right? But he's like, no, 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 we're just getting started, you know? Hey, I got rid of the lust, hallelujah, right? Yeah, we're getting rid of anxiety next, no, you know? <laughs> I lean on that when I'm in trouble. I gotta, gotta kind of worry about stuff, you know? It's kind of how I keep my head together. Yeah. No, you know? <laughs> he's gonna take it all. All right, okay. So the second step to unity is using our Christian resources. That's how we get free, right? We can't be unified if we're all stuck in our stuff. Final step to unity is embracing the Christian goal. And now we're back to verses 9 and 10. And this is, uh, it's deep stuff. It's important stuff. Um, he says, a grace, verse 8, grace overflows through wisdom and understanding by knowing what God is doing. What's God doing? Verse 9. The mystery of his will. He's a mystery because it wasn't clear in the Old Testament according to the favor which he intended in Christ, with respect to the plan or the arrangement in the fullness of times, which is what? 
to bring everything together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in him. This is what God's doing. Everything in the universe will either be surrendered in unity in Christ or under his feet. If you want about the under, under his feet thing as well, and we'll get there. Okay. All peoples, all things unified in Christ, not just Jew and Gentile, but all conflict, all acrimony, all hostility absorbed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Little illustration from one of my old favorite Jesus Rock guys, Barry McGuire. He says, the cross, an illustration for it, is a shock absorber. So, you know, there's waves of, of conflict and stress flowing through society, right? Shock waves of, of, of anger and pain, desperation, lust, just shock waves blowing through society. And Jesus, in the cross, of course, he absorbs the shock of that and makes reconciliation possible. But we have a role. Right, through his church. We'll read verse 23 in a minute, but I'll give, finish the illustration. So when those shock waves of anger and frustration hit you, you have a choice, right? You can harden, and then it bounces off of you, you know, right? Or as a little Christ, you can say, yeah, I'm going to absorb the shock. I'm going to absorb the shock. And there's peace in one relationship. Shock absorbers right? We're little Christ. So here's the verse. He says, sealed by the Holy Spirit, verse 14, who's the uh, down payment of our inheritance. No, I'm in the wrong place. Here we go. Verse 22 and 23. He subjected everything under his feet, under Christ's feet, and made him head over everything for the church, which is his body. His body. Now what's his body? the fullness of the one who fills for himself all things in every way. In other words, he is head over the whole world, right? Everything for the church. But then we're the fullness in the world to fill up all of these needs in Christ. So in other words, the mystery is there's two de destinies for every created thing. We're brought together in Christian unity or defeated under Christ's feet. Verse 21. But how does the unifying happen? Through the church. His body is the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And so as we do that, uh, you know, right now, Nick's filling some needs, right? And he's absorbing the shock of a child that perhaps, perhaps the pastor's preached too long or, you know, whatever, right? But he's absorbing the shock of that, right? And, uh, and so Jesus used the picture of leaven working through the whole dough. So that as we are infiltrating every aspect of society, we're, again, like Barry McGuire says, we're a little shock absorber wherever we are. Or as Jesus said, we're a lump of dough wherever we, wherever we are, and we're bringing life and absorbing shock and pain, ministering the gifts and life of Jesus Christ wherever we are. So the church and his body bring the healing of the gospel praying for people, the sick, ministering wholeness of soul in Christ, bringing restored relationship, bringing grace into a broken world. And so we preach the gospel and in, in, in an era when sometimes people are closed to the gospel, 
or in those situations, we bring the peace of Christ into every relationship, creating a platform for the gospel. That's how genuine unity grows. And I'm going to nuance what Colton alluded to. I think that faith is actually released by unity. So that the unified, revived church will see, I think, more miracles than the dead church. Jesus says this, praying for his disciples, but then he says in verse 20 of John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May, the world, may they also be in us that the world may believe you sent me. So in other words, when we are living in Christ, actively living in Christ as the body, the world believes that God sent Jesus. And then verse 23, I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So in other words, you wonder, why, why do you always see more miracles on the edges of revival? Because the church is living in faith and unity. And there's a greater release of the gospel in that. Uh, there's, we still live in a fallen world. I think that, you know, uh, not everything's resolved until Christ comes again. But I do think there's a very real growth in the miraculous with respect to physical miracles, but also especially and the powerfully long-term, the healing of soul that results in the life of Jesus growing and increasing as the unified church loves one another and loves a lost and broken world. So the final step to unity is embracing the Christian goal of unifying all things in Christ. Not a universal salvation because he says he'll put everything under his feet that does not submit. The hostile, hostile spiritual powers will be defeated and those who tragically uh, choose to align with them, uh, they will join the, uh, the serpent, the beast, and the false prophet in the lake of fire, tragically. Christ unifies all believers. So the steps to Christian unity to embrace your identity in Christ, to use the Christian resources. And this is where I think all of the prophetic ministry earlier today kind of centered around use what we have in Christ. And then finally, uh, embrace the goal of unity. One little illustration of this from uh, the 1100s. This crazy Italian nut, uh, Francis of Assisi, he's known as, along with, you know, literally rebuilding broken down stone churches, eventually realized it really means building up the church spiritually and gather some people and they, you know, they live by faith and preach the gospel. But, you know, you may be aware that during his lifetime, the Crusades were going on. And Francis thought, well, the you know, best solution, let's convert the Muslims, right? So he, you know, has a little tattered robe on, and he just kind of wanders right through the Crusades and right through the battlefield and meets the sultan and shares the gospel with the sultan. He identified with Christ. He used God's power and nearly converts him. The sultan, a Muslim, basically said, if all the Christians were like you, I'd believe. What if Francis had not been the only one? 
We live in a torn and broken world. We have an opportunity to live in our identity, to use the resources we're given to pursue the healing of all things in Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. And as we begin to pray, I'm going to encourage you to ask the Lord. Say, Lord, what's my step today? What is my step to move toward the unity of the body of Christ to contribute to what you are doing this semester, this month, this year? Holy Spirit, now we invite you to come. We ask that you'd help each one of us to take the next step of faith and obedience, trusting in you, embracing our fundamental identity in Christ, the unity we have across every racial, ethnic, subcultural line, embracing your power for us who believe. Hallelujah building genuine unity in the body of Christ. So, Father, we trust you. We pray that you would strengthen. I pray that you'd be planting seeds of vision. Seeds of what you want to do through our lives that are to be planted and grow this semester, this month, step to take today. Ask every head bowed, every eye closed, my eyes are open. I'm going to ask, is anyone here today, you say, I'm really not in a place of faith and obedience. I need to take a step toward Jesus and just make it right. Just raise your hand real quickly. I'm going to pray for you right now. Just need to take a step. Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that not only would you help with obedience, but you would grant a deep faith, a deep faith in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you would pour out a Trinitarian experience, the knowledge of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship, the fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, for any struggling, Lord, we pray the friendship of the Holy Spirit become a common thing to know you, O God. Second question, God is stirring you to either begin or continue specific efforts to build the body of Christ. Just raise your hand quickly. I want you to bookmark in your brain right now. In Jesus' name, we ask your blessing as you are putting seeds or maybe you're watering seeds or maybe there's actually already action in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We pray you would bless as we seek you as we seek to do your will, as we seek to bring life wherever we go, Father, we ask that you would lead us, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.